Chapter 29 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 29 A Spider's Dinner Party. Now is the happy time when Oxford, ever old, yet ever fresh with the gay triennial crown of youth, was preparing itself for that sweet leisure of which it is seldom ill prepared being the paramount castle and strongest feudal hold of stout idolese this fair city has not much to do to get itself in a prime condition for the noblest efforts and most arduous feats of invincible laziness the first and most essential step is to summon all her students and send them to chapel to pay their vows after this there need be no misgiving of fear of industry with one accord they issue forth, all pledged to do nothing for the day, week, or month, each intellectual browest stamped with the strongest resolve not to open a book, and games are the spur which the clear spirit doth raise, scorn the dons, and live luxurious days. This being so, whether winter shatters the iced wave against folly bridge, or spring's arrival rustles in the wavering leaves of Magdalen, her autumn strews the chastened fragrance of so many brewers on ripe air. How much more when the beauteous summer fosters the coy down on the lip of the junior sophist like the thistle seed, and casts the freshman's shadow hotly on the flags of High Street. Now or never is the proper period not to overwork oneself, and the hour for taking it easy." But against each sacred rite and hallowed custom of the place, against each good old-fashioned smoothness and fine-fed sequacity, a rapid stir was now arising, and a strong desire to give a shove. There were some few people who really thought that the little world in which they lay was one they ought to move in, that perfect life was not to be had without some attempt at breathing, and that a fire, though beautifully laid, gives little warmth till kindled. However, these were young fellows mostly, clever in their way, but not quite sound, and the heads of houses, generally speaking, abode on the housetop and did not come down. Still they kept their sagacious eyes on the movement gathering down below, and made up their minds to crush it as soon as they could be quite certain of being too late. But these things ride not upon the cart of Cripps, though Cripps is a theologian, when you beat his charges down. After the Easter vacation was over, with too few fattening festivals, the most popular tutor of Brazenose, being the only one who ever tried to teach, came back to his rooms and his cottage work with a very fine appetite for doing good, according at least to his own ideas of good and duty and usefulness, all of which were fundamentally wrong in the opinion of the other tutors. But hard now, while he avoided carefully all disputes with his colleagues, strictly kept his own course, and doing more work than the other five all put together attempted, was permitted to have his own way because of the trouble there might be in stopping him. The college met for the idled term on Saturday morning as usual. On Saturday afternoon, Hardenau led off his old squad with two new recruits for their fifteen miles of hard walking. Athletics and training were as yet unknown, except with the eight for Henley, and this Tractarian movement may have earned its name ere the birth of number ninety from the tract of road traversed, in a toe-and-heel track by the fine young fellows who were up to it. At any rate, 
That was what the country people said, and these are more often right than wrong, and the same opinion still abides with him. Ardenau only took this long tramp for the sake of collecting his forces. Saturday was not their proper day for this very admirable coat-tail chase, neither did they swallow hill and plain in this manner on a Sunday. Lectures were needful to fetch them up to the proper pitch for striding so. Wherefore, on the morrow, Mr. Hardenau was free for a cruise of his own account. After morning sermon at St. Mary's, and not having heard of his old friend Russell for several weeks, he resolved to go and hunt him up in his own home. It was not a possible thing for this very active and spare-bodied man to lounge upon his road. Whatever it was that he undertook, he carried on the action with such a swing and emphasis that he seemed to be doing nothing else. He wore a short spencer and a long-tailed coat, typical, to use the pet word of that age, both of his curt brevity and his ankle-reaching gravity. His jacket stuck to him, and his coat struck away with the power of an adverse wind, while the boys turned back and stared at him, but he was so accustomed to that sort of thing that he never thought of looking round. He might have been tailpiped for seven leagues without troubling his head about it. This was a man of great power of mind, and led up to a lofty standard, pure, unselfish, good, and grand, so far as any grandeur can be in the human compound, watchful over himself in almost every corner of his ways, kind of heart and fond of children, loving all simplicity, quick to catch and glance the meaning of minds very different from his own. Subtle also, and deep to reason, but never much inclined to argue. He had a shy and very peculiar manner of turning his eyes away from even an undergraduate when his words did not commend assent, as sometimes happened with freshmen full of conceit from some great public school. The matter of his mind was never to assert itself or enter into controversy, he felt that no arguments would stir himself when he had solidly cast his thoughts, and he had of all courtesies the rarest, at any rate with Englishmen, the courtesy of hoping that another could reason as well as himself. In this honest and strenuous nature there was one deficiency. The Reverend Thomas Hardnow, copious of mind and active, clear of memory and keen at every knot of scholarship, patient and candid too, and not at all intolerant, yet never could reach the highest rank through want of native humor. His view of things was nearly always anxious and earnest. His standing point was so fixed and stable that every subject might be said to revolve on its own axis during its revolution around him, and the side that never presented itself was the ludicrous or lightsome one. As he strode up the hill with the back of his leg line concave at the calf instead of convex, whenever his fluttering skirt allowed a glimpse of what he never thought about, it was brought home suddenly to his ranging mind that he might be within view of Beckley. At a bend of the rising road he turned and endwise down a plate of hills and between soft pillowy folds of trees the simple old church of Beckley stood for his thoughts to make the most of it and to guide them the chime of the gentle bells foretelling of the service at three o'clock came on the tremulous conveyance of the wind, murmuring the burden he knew so well. Old men and ancient dames, married folk and children, bachelors and maidens, all come to church. 
Ardenau thought of the months he had spent some few years back in that quiet place, of the long, laborious, lonesome days, the solid hours divided well, the space allotted for each hard drill. Then, when the pages grew dim and dark, and the bat flitted over the lattice, or the white owl sailed to the rickyard, the glory of sallying into the air inhaling grander volumes than ever from the mortal breath proceeded, and plunging into leaves that speak of one great author only, and well he remembered in all that toil and pure delight of the Sunday, the precious balm of kicking out both legs and turning on the pillow until eight o'clock, the leisurely breakfast with the Saturday papers instead of Aristotle, an instructive and amusing walk to church where everybody admired him, and he set the fashion for at least ten years, the dread of the parson that a man who was known as the best of his year at Oxford should pick out the fallacies of his old logic, and then culminating triumph of sabbatic jubilee, the dinner, the dinner wherewith the whole week had been privately gestating up to that crowning moment when Cripps, in a coat of no mean broadcloth, entered with a dish of Cripsic size, with the trimmings coming after him on a tray and lifting the cover with a pant and flourish, said, Well, sir, now what do ye please to think of that? Nor in this pleasant retrospect of kindness and simplicity was the element of rustic grace and beauty wholly absent, the slight young figure that flitted in and out with quick desire to please him, the soft pretty smile with which his improvements of Beckley dialect were received, and the sweet gray eyes that filled with tears so the day before his college met. Hardenau had feared, humble-minded as he was, that the young girl might be falling into liking him too well, and he knew that there might be on his own part too much reciprocity. Therefore, much as he loved Cripps, and fully as he allowed for all that was to be said upon every side, he had felt himself bound to take no more than a distant view of Beckley. Even now, after three years and a half, there was some resolve in him to that effect, or the residue of a resolution. He turned from the gentle invitation of the distant bells and went on with his face set towards the house of his old friend Overshoot. When he came to the lodge, which was like a great beehive stuck at the end of a row of trees, it caused him a little surprise to find the gate wide open, and nobody there. But he thought that, as it was Sunday, perhaps the lodge people were gone for a holiday, and so he trudged onward, and met no one to throw any light upon anything. In this way he came to the door at last, with a fine old porch of Purbeck stone heavily overhanging it, and the long wings of the house stretched out, with empty windows either way. Ardenau rang, and knocked, and then set to and knocked and rang again, and then sat down on a stone bolstrade, and then jumped up with just vigor renewed, and pushed and pulled, and in every way worked to the utmost degree the capacity of everything that had ever been gifted with any power of conducting sound. Nobody answered. The sound of his energy went into places far away, and echoed there, and then from stony corners came back to him. He traced the whole range of the windows and caught no sign of any life inside them. At last he pushed the great door, and lo, there was nothing to resist his thrust, except its sullen weight. When Hardnow stood in the old-fashioned hall, which was not at all baronial, 
he found himself getting into such a fright that he had a great mind to go away again, if there had only been anybody with him. However inferior in the mental power, he might have been able to refresh himself by demonstrating something, and then have marched on to the practical proof. But now he was all by himself, in strange and unaccountable loneliness. The sense of his condition perhaps induced him to set to and shout. The silence was so oppressive that the sound of his own voice almost alarmed him by its audacity. So, after shouting Russell thrice, he stopped and listened, and heard nothing except that cold and shuddering ring, as of hardware and frosty weather, which stone and plaster and timber gave when deserted by their lords, mankind. Knowing pretty well all the chief rooms of the house, Hardnall resolved to go and see if they were locked, and grasping his black holly stick for self-defense, he made for the dining room. The door was wide open, the cloth on the table, with knives and forks and glasses placed, as if for a small dinner party. But the only guest visible was a long-legged spider, with a sound and healthy appetite, who had come down to dine from the oak beams overhead, and was sitting in his web between a claret bottle and a cruet stand, ready to receive with a cordial clasp any eligible visitor. Hardenau tasted the water in a jug and found it quite stale and nasty. Then he opened a napkin, and the bread inside it was dry and hard as biscuit. Then he saw with still further surprise that the windows were open to their utmost extent, and the basket of plate was on the sideboard. "'My old friend Russell, my dear old fellow,' he cried with his hand on his heart, where lurked disease as yet unsuspected. "'What strange misfortune has befallen you?' No wonder my letter was left unanswered. Perhaps the dear fellow is now being buried, and every one gone to his funeral. But no, if it were so, these things would not be thus. The funeral feast is a grand institution. Everything would be fresh and lively, and five leaves put into the dinner-table. With his true reflection, he left the room to seek the solution elsewhere. He failed, however, to find it in any of the downstairs sitting-rooms. Then he went even into the kitchen, thinking the liberty allowable under such conditions. Great was cold and the table bare. On one lay a drift of soot. On the other, a level deposit of dust, with a few grimy implements to distribute it. Hardnow made up his mind for the worst. He was not addicted to fiction, as happily was indicated by his good degree, but he could not help recalling certain Eastern and even classic tales and if he had come upon all the households sitting in native marble, or from the waistband downward turned into fish or logs or dragons, he might have been partly surprised, but must have been wholly thankful for the explanation. Failing, however, to discover this, and being resolved to go through with the matter, the tutor of Brazenose mounted the black oak staircase of this enchanted house. At the head of the stairs is a wide, low passage, leading right and left from a bolstrated gallery. The young man chose first the passage to the right, and tightening his grip of the stick, strode on. End of chapter 29